If you'll join me in Romans chapter 1 this morning, Romans chapter 1, if you're using the blue ESV Bible, you can join us on page 939, page 939. The title of our sermon this morning is The Gospel of God, and the keywords for our worshipers and training are Son, Gospel, and Apostle. We're looking at Romans chapter 1 this morning, verses 1 through 4. Now, every single year, hundreds of people from all around the world travel to the Himalayas, and they have this great dream of reaching the summit of Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world. Now, most climbers will attempt to reach the peak of the world's tallest mountain in May, and in fact, next week is when many of them will begin their journey for 2020, if they're able to, when temperatures are generally a little bit warmer and the high-altitude winds known as the jet stream have moved away from the mountain. Now, if you're geographically challenged, Mount Everest sits right between the border of Nepal and Tibet. And if you don't know where that is, I don't know how to help you. Just look at a map later when you get home. Now, for those who who decide to climb on the southern route from Nepal, they fly into Nepal's capital, the city uh, Kathmandu, and then they fly to a small village called Lukla. And once they are there, the climbers and their personal staff, along with local Sherpa guides, spend nearly two weeks hiking to uh, Everest's base camp, which is 17,000 feet in elevation itself. And once they're at the base camp, they spend two weeks there just adjusting to the climate, to, uh, to the altitude. They're waiting for optimal weather conditions before they continue another four days to reach their next camp. And once they're at uh, their camp, then they begin to ascend the remainder of the mountain. They have camps along the way, but the summit of Mount Everest is 29,029 feet in elevation, which is about five and a half miles above sea level, which is about where we are here. So if you can imagine going from here to five and a half miles up, that's the difference. Now, most people who attempt Everest spend years before they do it working out all the details in order to make it happen. You don't just show up one day and climb Mount Everest. You have to assemble gear, you have to hire a staff, you have to raise money, you have to prepare your body physically. Most guides are not going to take anyone up Mount Everest who hasn't first completed two other challenging peaks before this one. And climbers usually pay anywhere between $40,000 and $100,000, depending on the size of their staff and all of the equipment they have. They have to bring bottled oxygen. They have to bring special food. They have high-altitude gear and tents and sleeping bags and boots and special clothing and medical equipment, a lot of stuff that goes up the mountain with them. And of course, I know some of you are thinking right now, why? Why would anyone do that? And of course, that's, that's for each and every person who does it to answer for themselves. I think, given the opportunity, I would absolutely try to climb Mount Everest myself. I like 
these what seem to be insurmountable challenges to see if I can do it. But I also completely understand anyone who says there is not a chance in the world I would even touch it. We all have different ideas and interests about the kinds of challenges we want to undertake in life, and that's okay. But when I, when I think of climbing Mount Everest, I want to tell you that I think taking on the book of Romans is the preacher's equivalent to climbing Mount Everest. Every book in the Bible is a high peak in this vast mountain range, but Romans stands the tallest. Now, I don't mean to say in terms of importance, all of the books of the Bible are important. No one is necessarily more important than the other, but I mean in terms of challenge. I mean in terms of difficulty. I mean in terms of how often it is attempted and failed, how often men have tempted to trod the path and have fallen short and have been left frozen on the side of the mountain. I've thought many years about climbing this peak, but I never got a sense that I was prepared to do so. I've even told several of you in the past that that it would be a while before I did it. So why now? Why enter into this great letter? Well, later this year, I will have been at Redeemer Baptist Church for 13 years. And in that time, I've preached 21 different sermon series in addition to many individual sermons. The longest we did was the book of Luke. That was 100 sermons exactly to get through uh, Luke's gospel. And in that 13 years as a church, we've gone through many challenges. We've gone through many changes. We've grown numerically. We've grown spiritually together. We've walked through a few deaths. We have walked through many births together. We've gone through two major hurricanes. We've changed the name of our church. We planted a church in Savannah. We helped start the Reformed Baptist Network. We funded and stood up an entire seminary together in Nigeria. We've helped plant a church in Nigeria. We brought on new staff, new leadership, and all of that while we have sought to serve one another, serve our community, and continue to grow together in our communion with God. And so personally, in the midst of all that, I've grown from being a young, fresh-from-the-army man in my 20s to just turning 38 a few weeks ago. And For some of you, that's old, and for some of you, you're wondering when I'm going to grow up. Now, my, my kids are now all school-aged. And I'm on the cusp of finishing my Ph.D. to complete my third degree. I've honed my academic and study and research skills through the years. I've had many opportunities to preach around the world. I've had many opportunities to interact with many of Christianity's greatest scholars and preachers. And I've learned a lot from people. And I've learned a lot from different cultures. And I've learned a lot about myself. And I've, I've sought to learn more of, of God and His great work in this world all around us, and all of this may seem a bit dramatic in context, but I want you to know that we tread into the book of Romans only because the Lord has seen fit to let all of this other stuff happen first. I have never been accused of lacking confidence in my life, but Everest is a different task altogether. 
Some of the other peaks have been difficult, and I know I haven't always been able to climb them with absolute precision along the way, but we made it. And this is different, though. The obstacles are many. The path gets slick sometimes. Romans will take incredible mental stamina. And if we do this right, if we hit the summit of Romans and understand what Paul wrote about what God intends by the power of the Holy Spirit for us to grasp in our communion with Him, everything we know about God and our relationship with Him will be sweeter, it will be deeper. And if we do it without falling along the way, we will be breathing some very rare air. I am convinced that almost all of the errors that have crept into the Christian faith throughout the history of the church are answered by the book of Romans. I think the shallowness of modern evangelicalism is answered by the book of Romans. And it exists because of a fundamental misunderstanding of Paul's message. I think the the heart of the gospel is expounded in the book of Romans more than any other book of the Bible. And we're given the most thorough roadmap in the book of Romans of union and communion with all three members of the Trinity holding forth the law of God in all three of its important and necessary uses in the lives of unbelievers, in the lives of society, and in the life of the church. And so unlike those who have climbed Everest, I do not have any idea how long it will take us to get to the top. I can assure you that this will be a most lengthy undertaking through the Bible, and thus far the longest that we have undertaken. And I already told you it took a hundred sermons to get through Luke. So obviously, we don't know what tomorrow brings. So should the Lord remove me before we finish this book, I trust that the Holy Spirit will do what is necessary each and every week through God's Word in our hearts to give us what we need for this day that we might be conformed all the more to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So come along with me on this journey as we climb Mount Everest of the Bible in Paul's letter to the Romans, and we begin at the base camp in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. Let's read together. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, you may notice in your English versions of the Bible that verses 1 through 7 are all one sentence. This is what all of your English professors in school called a run-on sentence. But it indicates for us, collectively, there's this major thought for Paul that's tied to this customary greeting to the church. It will be a few weeks before we get through this entire sentence, but I wanted to identify that and point out that Paul does something here that's similar to what he does in other letters, most especially in the book of Ephesians. Remember, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, the whole chapter is one sentence. 
And so he has a knack for drawing out this single thought as he, as he is unpacking this rich truth word after word. And so we're going to take our time. And this morning, as we consider verses 1 through 4, there are at least three things for us to take note of. Something we must know, something we must see, and something we must understand as Christians. So first, in verse 1, we must know that all Christians are servants of Christ, and some are set apart for gospel ministry. Look again, verse 1, he writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And so, in this very first word of the epistle, Paul identifies himself as the author. But notice he has three specific ways that he identifies himself. He calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus, that's one. He calls himself an apostle, that's two, and he calls himself as one set apart for the gospel of God, that's three. And notice all three of these identify Paul as one who is in a position of self-sacrifice in service to God. Consider each one of those. First, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, because of the Greek word Paul uses here for servant, many people will translate this or insist that what he means here is actually the word slave. And so, they would contend that we should recognize that Paul is calling himself a slave of Jesus here. However, that doesn't seem to quite accurately get to the heart of what Paul is communicating. We generally think of a slave, especially in our Western context in history, with the idea that involves this sort of involuntary servitude to someone, a forced labor under harsh conditions, under harsh treatment, a person who's treated as property instead of someone who is an individual with a soul worthy of nurture and care and love. And so, in that context, translating this as slave is not helpful, and and actually it's quite contrary to what Paul is communicating. We have to remember who Paul was. Remember, the Apostle Paul in Philippians called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. He said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he was very, very well-versed in all that we see in the Old Testament. So when Paul calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus, he is almost certainly doing so in the same way as Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David and Isaiah and many others who were called God's servants in the Old Covenant. So he is simultaneously identifying his role in the history of the faith with a particularly important role that we're going to look at in a moment, but, but let's not downplay it as though he sees himself who, uh, who is completely surrendered to a master and a king who is lording it over him or who is uh, doing something to him that he doesn't want. No, he is completely surrendered to his master and his king willingly. And so the difference between his servanthood to Christ 
And the concept of slavery is that being a servant of Christ is not being a slave to one who treats his servants as property without souls, as tools to be used for their own ends. No, Christ's servants are treated far greater than they deserve, and they receive an abundance of grace upon grace upon grace from God, that they might live freely and joyfully and uprightly because they are cared for and loved and and shown an abundance of mercy and love and kindness from their master. If you think of an English medieval castle, Often they were quite large. There were up to 50 different servants oftentimes serving within the castle to include cooks and carpenters and masons and falconers and musicians alongside the guards and the knights and chaplains and stewards and marshals. And for anyone to hold any one of these positions was considered a great honor, not just in word but in actual honor. Very few people in a kingdom got to serve the king, and those who did were given a wage, they were given all of their meals, they were given a place to live, and for most of them, they came from families who were not able to provide any of these things for them. They didn't have good living conditions otherwise. So to secure a position in the king's castle, no matter what it was, was a tremendous privilege, and everyone saw it that way. They wanted to serve within the king's castle, no matter who he was. So just think, as as Christians, with a king who's not only gracious and benevolent, but who laid his life down for us, how great a privilege it is that we could be called his servants. This is a characteristic of our relationship with God that we must all recognize about ourselves. We are servants of Christ, not unwillingly, not begrudgingly, but because we have been given new hearts, we've been given new lives, we've been given eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. And even more amazing in all of this, He made the first move. And he covenanted to live and die in the place of his servants. And then with all patience and endurance, he continues to walk with us through all of our days, seeing to it that we are conformed to his likeness more and more and more. And so Christians are not unwilling slaves. We are willing and joyful servants. We want to do all that we do for the good of our master because he is worthy. This is the calling. This is how all believers should think of themselves as servants of the king, given the great privilege of being taken out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. What a tremendous blessing! Now, Paul goes on to identify that in addition to being a servant, he is also an apostle. Now, to be an apostle, there were some very specific, very distinct things that had to be true about a man. We learn in Acts chapter 1 that an apostle was a man who uh, who had seen Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And let me tell you, that requirement right there does away 
with any argument for any modern-day apostles. There is no such thing because nobody today has seen the risen Jesus Christ. So an apostle had to see Christ risen from the dead. They had to be able to give firsthand testimony. He also had to be a man who was personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to speak for him, to represent him, to assist in the building of the foundation of the church on their teaching. And of course, we know from Acts chapter 9 that all of this happened to the Apostle Paul in dramatic fashion on the road to Damascus. Later in Acts chapter 26, Paul explains everything. He says, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me." And so the Apostle Paul saw the Lord Jesus Christ. He was called by the Lord Jesus Christ. He was commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know of Paul's life that he was used by the Lord Jesus Christ in an incredible way until the very last day of his earthly life and still to this day through his words continues to build His church against, the, against which the gates of hell shall never, ever prevail. Now, related to his apostleship, Paul also writes that he was set apart for the gospel of God. He was separated or he was sanctified. He was moved apart from everything else for this task, to spread the gospel, to pursue this one thing unlike any other. Now, remember, again, Paul was not some average citizen. Paul was a purebred of the Jewish stock. He was among the most elite of the most elite of the Jews. He set an example for the other Pharisees to follow. So, Paul's putting all of that down all of the wealth, all of the health, all the popularity, all of the friends, all of the safety, all of the comfort that comes along with being a Pharisee. And it was no small thing. He did it all so that he could be faithful to the calling that he was set apart for, which was the gospel of God. And so Paul saw himself as one who was uniquely separated to preach the good news and to lay a foundation for the church that would be built upon continually for the generations to come. So Paul knew his place. 
He knew exactly what his purpose was in his life as a servant and as an apostle and as one who is uniquely set apart by God to preach the gospel. And he is the one who is the author of this letter. And when a guy has those credentials, when those are the letters after his name, if you will, you should pay attention to what he has to say. And something he shows us in verse 2, our second point this morning, is that we must see the gospel of God in all of Scripture. Look again at verse 2. This gospel of God is that which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. For a long time, there was a standard practice that when a king or an emperor's army had won a battle and had taken over a new territory, the leader would then ride in on his horse and tour his new acquisition while the people of the territory served and bowed down to him. It was a victory tour. But the king never just showed up unannounced. In fact, it was very clear when he was coming. Before the king arrived, he would send a herald into the town. And that herald was to notify the people that the king would soon be arriving. And the king's herald would have the king's standard, the the flag that he would carry that signified the king's authority and identified who he was. And so when the watchman on the wall saw that standard, saw that flag in the distance, they would alert the city, and the people of the city would begin cleaning the city and preparing for the herald's arrival, and they would all assemble to greet the herald as he came into the center of the town. And then the herald would stand, and he would read the king's proclamation to the townspeople, And the the mayor of the town would petition the king through the herald for all that they thought that he could do for them to improve the lives of the citizens. And then the herald would go back and he would report to the king and word would be sent to the people of when the king's visit would be. And they would all dress up as beautiful as they could for this special occasion and they were ready to receive the king and his entourage. And then the king in his beautiful splendor and everyone who came with him would enter into the city and he would proclaim his message of victory. He would make pronouncements regarding the various petitions that were brought to him by the herald. Well, the gospel, the good news as it is often referred to, is literally a good herald. It is an announcement And it is an announcement to be heralded by the one who is sent as an ambassador of the king, the herald, to go into the town square and to proclaim. The king, in this instance, has come and the king will come again. This is the kind of language that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians when he says we are ambassadors of Christ. And it's very much how he sees himself in verse 1. But we have to be clear about what he is heralding. So often today you hear people talk about doing the gospel or living out the gospel. But the gospel is not a verb. It's not something we do. It's not something we live out. 
It's an announcement to be heralded. And once that announcement is heard and understand and received, we then live out the implications of that in our lives. But the gospel itself is an announcement. And the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, came into this world and lived a sinless life in perfect fulfillment of the law and died a sinner's death upon the cross, taking upon himself the wrath of God in our place and being buried in the ground and raised again on the third day to conquer death. It's the good news that by faith, when we receive this truth, when we receive by grace alone, by faith alone, that Jesus Christ lived and died and was raised from the dead for us, that we too can have everlasting life. That's the announcement. And it's that good news that Paul is telling us was promised beforehand. It didn't just show up in the first century. No, in fact, the good news was first announced in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 when God cursed the serpent and promised to send the seed of a woman. But we learn in Scripture that indeed it was even before Genesis 3.15 that the good news, this announcement, was made known. It was in a covenant of redemption in eternity past. This covenant before the foundations of the world that the Father and the Son made together, they covenanted to fulfill all of the necessary grounds that mankind might obtain life everlasting with God. And so if you think of that on a timeline, we move from eternity past where a covenant is made between the Father and the Son to Genesis 3.15, to the time when God made known to the, at the time, the inhabited world, that this Messiah would eventually come, to the messianic psalms that portray the coming deliverer, to the prophets who announce a new covenant and the one who would bear our griefs and sorrows and would be stricken and smitten by God and afflicted on our behalf, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, taking on Himself the wrath of God to bring us peace. And so over and over and over again, the Old Testament points beyond itself to this time that is yet to come because God has made a promise through His prophets to whom He entrusted His message, His heralds, His heralds who would speak on behalf of Him and make known His coming, you see. But notice what else Paul mentions here. Beyond the prophets, he says that this message was written down. It is in the Holy Scriptures. It was to these very Scriptures at the very end of Luke's Gospel that we see the resurrected Christ Himself pointing. Remember, the disciples were confused. They were sad. They were longing to be with Christ again, and He shows up and doesn't make known to them that it is Him at first. And instead of telling them, it's me, no, first He shows them and tells them all that they should have known from reading the Old Testament 
in the first place, that they should have seen it all along, that everything that came to pass was according to the Scriptures, and that they could trust God's Word. Brothers and sisters, Christ is not just in our New Testament. Christ is not just dabbled here and there through the Bible. All of Scripture was written about Jesus. All of Scripture was written for Jesus. All of Scripture points to Jesus. And if we miss that, we will miss the entire thrust of what Paul is doing in his letter to the Romans, and indeed, the entire thrust of what God is up to from beginning to end in the Bible itself. We must see the gospel of God in all of Scripture. We must see the promises in the prophets. We must see all that is written in the Holy Scriptures, and Paul is going to help us do that more and more as we walk through his letter in the months ahead. Well, thirdly and lastly, in verses 3 and 4, Paul shows us that we must understand who Christ is and what He has accomplished. Look at verse 3. He says, concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you think about all of these pieces as they come together here, we have this gospel of God that was promised to us beforehand. The covenant of redemption made between the Father and the Son. And after Adam failed to fulfill the covenant of works, the covenant of grace is promised in Genesis 3.15. We have the promise that the Son, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, would descend from heaven would take on human flesh, would be born of a woman named Mary who was betrothed to a man who was a direct descendant of David. And Jesus was created in the womb by the Holy Spirit to live in this world and to take on pain and struggle and suffering and the infirmity of mankind, but to do it all in perfect fulfillment of the law of God to eventually die the death that sinners deserve and in doing to take on the full weight of God's wrath being poured out on Him for all of your sins and for all of my sins from the past and in the present and in the future. And in that moment, that moment when Jesus cried out on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father's holy and righteous and just anger was delivered to His Son. Your unrighteous anger this week, your impatience this morning, your lying yesterday, your lustful heart on Thursday, your greed on Wednesday. He took the punishment for all of it on Himself while the Father turned His face away. And in His suffering and death, the Lord Jesus exchanged His perfect righteousness for your filthy rags. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. 
And then in power he was raised from the dead to once and for all conquer the great enemy of all humanity, which is death itself, that we might live and dwell together with him forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, this is the greatest and truest story that has ever been told of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is at the center of it all. He is the rock upon which all of Christianity is built, and indeed, He is the rock upon which all of human history revolves around. And and we must understand this because Jesus is at the heart of our faith. And friend, you might hear this and not believe in Jesus, And, and you might think that we sort of think, well, if it's not true, no big deal, But if it is, you have a big problem. Maybe you've heard someone say that before, but we don't actually think that. No, if Jesus is not who he says he is, and if he did not do what he came to do, the entire foundation of our faith is undermined and the entire faith of Christianity collapses and we are all left without hope because we still stand condemned by our sin and guilt. John Stott wrote, take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There is practically nothing left. Christ is at the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. So you see, we we don't think it's no big deal if it's not real. And in fact, Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians that if it is not real, we above all mankind are to be pitied because we have believed a lie. But the evidence of the gospel is overwhelming. And Paul is here telling us in this letter, this letter to the Romans is a letter that is primarily concerning the gospel of God and all of its implications in our lives because of the person and because of the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of His church. Now, something important to recognize about what Paul writes here in these two verses Notice in verse 3, he's showing us very clearly that Jesus was indeed a man. He was of the flesh. He has a family lineage. Jesus was a man who took on flesh and blood. He was 100% man. He got hungry like you. He got thirsty like you. He got tired like you. He got hurt like you. He had temptations like you, except he never fell into them. He had the daily struggles of life to deal with like you, but he had the perfect wisdom to deal with them. He had to learn like you. He had to grow like you. He had to suffer heartache and heartbreak and sadness, and he had to grieve and deal with tragedy, and through it all, he had to fight off the constant onslaught of the evil one and everyone who was around him who tried to take him down. Jesus was a man in every way. He was a man's man. But notice also in verse 4, Jesus is also very much divine. Jesus was designated Son of God by His resurrection from the dead, is what Paul says. Jesus is 100% God. So, we can't think about Jesus like a pie. He's not three pieces man and one piece God. 
He's not how some of you order pizza because you can't make up your minds as a family. Just make half of it pepperoni and half of it put olives on it or something. No one would dare put pineapple on it, so I won't even mention that. We can't think of God in that way. We can't think of Jesus in that way. He's not made up of pieces. He's not 98% man and 2% God. No, he's 100% man. He is 100% God. And so he has two natures. Jesus has two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. And we call that, theologically, we call that the hypostatic union. It's a fun theological phrase to throw around at the dinner table. But what we're saying is that Jesus' humanity and Jesus' divinity do not mix. They do not intermingle. They do not interfere with one another. But they both exist in the person of Jesus Christ. And so if you think of when you go one day when you can go back inside of a restaurant and they have the self-serve, soft-serve ice cream machines. One side you pull and vanilla comes out and the other side you pull and chocolate comes out and you have that middle one, the twist, where they both come out at the same time. We can't think of Jesus like that. No, he is all of one. He is all of the other. He's not twisted. He's not mixed. He's not intermingled. As the divine second person of the Trinity, he has been and always will be the second member of the Trinity in his divinity. In his humanity, he was created. He was born into this world and endured suffering and shame. So how does all that work? How is it that Jesus can be 100% human 100% divine. My great theological answer is, I don't know. It is a divine mystery. And it is one for us all to contemplate and to give thanks to God for. But you know, above all else, what really sets the claims and the story of Jesus apart from all others is his resurrection from the dead that confirms all that was said by the prophets and all that is in the scriptures and all that he has said in his earthly life. Had Jesus Christ not risen from the dead, he would be remembered today only as a Jewish moralist who had some inflated ideas about his relationship to God and who made a number of ridiculous demands on those who wanted to be his disciples. On the other hand, if it is true that he rose from the dead, then his teaching about himself is true, and his requirements for discipleship must be taken with all seriousness. He is, as Paul wrote, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer. He is also our Lord. He is our master. We are his servants, gladly his servants. And so, brothers and sisters, friends, as we climb Everest together, we have to keep asking ourselves, what do we do with Jesus? 
this first part of Romans, he's, he's going to lay out for us the law of God to bring conviction to our hearts. He will drive home to us what we call the first use of the law, to show us that we are sinners, to show us that we are helpless, to show us that we are hopeless without God, because it is in our very nature, it is our very sin that we will rebel against Him. And then, the law, acting as our schoolmaster, as Paul calls it, will instruct us to the point that we will be brought to the gospel. And so in the middle of this letter, we see the glorious gospel laid out in a way that is different from any other book of the Bible, showing us the power of God unto salvation. And then Paul will conclude his letter showing us the law one more time, but this time he will show us the third use of the law, communicating it to us, those who are redeemed, who now look to the law of God as a rule of life that we might walk in a manner pleasing to God. And so we see the law, we see the gospel, we see the law, and we see how law and gospel work together harmoniously and inseparably. Romans, my dear brothers and sisters, is a life-changing journey. Many of the most well-known Christians throughout history had their lives completely rearranged and turned upside down because of this letter. It's not an overstatement to say that the Protestant Reformation would not have happened without the book of Romans. Maybe you were saved because someone talked to you about the gospel using the book of Romans. And so we're going to take our time. We want to mine as many truth nuggets as we can while we journey up this mountain. And I pray that the Lord would make the journey worth our while, that He would give us all eyes to see the glorious, magnificent truth contained in this letter, that He would give us ears to hear the truth ringing loud and clear each and every day as we walk with our Lord, and that He would give us hearts to understand what can sometimes be difficult and confusing parts of what Paul has written. But brothers and sisters, as servants of God, we have a great opportunity to see that the Lord Jesus Christ, for whom and to whom and about whom all of Scripture was written, has accomplished nothing less for us than our pardon from sin and life everlasting. This is the gospel of God.